time the children are dismissed for children's ministry. And let me ask you to open your Bibles with me now to Mark chapter 3. As we do the very thing we've just sang about, hear the Lord speak to us from his word. Mark chapter 3, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 7 through 19 as we begin a new section within the Gospel of Mark that focuses now more specifically on how people will respond to Jesus, and specifically even who are those who are amongst his followers and who are those who are not amongst his followers, despite what their external lives might look like. This morning we focus in on Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 19, As we compare the crowd with the called, we look at those who came after Jesus for what he could give them and those whom Jesus called for what he could do with them. Mark chapter 3 verses 7 to 19 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we ask that you would help us to understand your word. Just as the psalmist prayed, Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. We know, Lord, that it's not as though you have simply spoken in the past tense, but you continue to speak in the present tense from the pages of your holy word. And so we would ask, Lord, that you would give us hearts and minds that would realize the gravity of what is about to take place here. Humble hearts, ready minds to receive the food of your word. Lord, we pray that as we look at this particular passage, a passage that may seemingly give us random details about the life and ministry of Jesus, we pray that you would teach us both about his life and ministry then and about his ministry currently. And we pray, O God, that you would search our hearts and see if there is any offensive way in us, that you would lead us in the way everlasting, that we would see what it truly is to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What is a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? How do you know if you are a Christian? How do you know if someone else is a Christian? We could answer that in a, in a variety of ways, I suppose. One such answer could be, well, the reality is that as a human being, I can't truly know if someone else is a Christian or not, right? I can't look inside of the heart of the human soul and see whether or not God has given new life to that person. And that would certainly be a satisfying answer in one regard, but it's at least according to the ministry of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, it's not a complete answer. Jesus teaches us that you will recognize a tree by its fruit. That the reality is we can be far too judgmental and we can be discriminatory in our so-called discernment to assess whether or not someone's profession of faith in Jesus Christ is real, but on the other hand, the reality is the church has a responsibility to test the genuineness of someone's profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, this is the heart of what church membership is, for instance. So then if that is the case, the right question to ask is, how do we know if a person is a Christian? Is it interest in Jesus that makes a person a Christian? They like him. They enjoy his teaching. They read about and perhaps even see what he can do in the lives of people and they think to themselves, hey, that's pretty great. I'd like some of that too. Is it interest in Jesus that makes a person a Christian? After all, doesn't someone need to have Jesus at least involved in their life in some particular way in order to be a Christian? Or is it more than interest? Taking it a step further, is it beyond interest? Is it a right confession of the identity of Jesus? Does it depend upon whether or not you can acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Is, is that what makes a person a Christian? Certainly we would have to say, well, yes, it's part of what makes a person a Christian. It's, it's a necessary, vital part. It's a, it's a bringing your life into the realm of reality to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. One can deny him, but that doesn't make it true that he is not the son of God. But I ask you, is, it, is the ability to rightly identify and even the confession from one's own mouth, is that what makes a person a Christian? Or is it deeper than that? 
We see in this passage this morning before us, and we see over and over again throughout the gospel according to Mark, and we see the reality in the pages of scripture that it is not mere interest in Jesus that makes one a Christian, though that's necessary. It is not, in fact, even a right confession of the identity of Jesus that makes one a Christian, though that's necessary. Rather, what makes a person a Christian is that they are called by the Lord Jesus Christ and they respond to that call by repenting of their sins and believing the gospel which he himself has preached and he himself has passed down for, to the apostles and then to the church. And the reality is if one has come into the, that very position, if one has been called by Jesus and responded to Jesus in repentance and faith, then the truth is that that will be visibly evident in a day-to-day correspondence with that person's life. Even in the fact that you will continue to see them sin, but you will see them respond rightly to their sin when they sin. It's no surprise and it's nothing new that we live in a time where we are probably, not probably, we are most definitely not as discerning and not as careful as we should be when we talk about what it means to be a Christian. We understand the biblical reality that confession of Jesus' identity is necessary, but also as Paul tells us in Romans, you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. We understand that it's not that salvation is by works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But what we often fail to remember is that faith is not just what we might call belief I believe that something will happen this particular time. I believe that the Cowboys will have a good season this year. You laugh because you know that that's a misguided belief, most likely. And so we have to be careful and discerning when we use words like belief. Because we often mean something by belief that the Bible does not mean. Or our definition of belief is often too shallow to be biblical. Belief in the Lord Jesus Christ is evidenced by the way in which one lives their life on a regular day-to-day basis. Do they walk with Jesus as one of his disciples? Not just do they say, I'm a Christian. And so as we move then from the opposition which Jesus faced in his ministry, we move into a new section of Mark where, as I said, he focuses his direction or or his attention specifically on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, or we today might say what it means to be a Christian. And we see this contrast here between the crowd and the called in this particular set of verses. I wanna point out to you something as we come to uh, the very beginning of this section here, as we started, I'm gonna 
give you an outline to break it up a little bit, but I want to point out something to you. Notice in verses 7 and then again in verses 9, there are two categories of people that are highlighted even within this first section here. Verse 7 says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed him. Now, what do you notice about those two groups? First of all, there are two groups, right? There are the disciples, and then there is the great crowd. Mark is intentionally highlighting for us, this is not the same group of people. They're not on the same side here. They don't have the same agenda here. He does it again in verse 9. Verse 9, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. He draws a distinction, doesn't he? Mark is saying to us, there's a line here that you need to see in order to understand what it is to really be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it is to really be a Christian. And so then as we drop into this passage, it's important that we set that framework in mind. It's important that we have that way of thinking to understand Because the reality is, we will see in this particular passage something that we see every day today. There are people who are greatly interested in Jesus, but they're not disciples of Jesus. There are people who rightly confess the identity of Jesus, but they're not disciples of Jesus. And so I think that this passage then points out to us three responses to Jesus that reveal the true heart of of Christianity. Three responses to Jesus that reveal the true heart of Christianity. What the epistles teach us in instruction, the gospels teach us by example. First of all, the first response we see is in verses 7 to 10, and we see there that there were those who were attracted to Jesus. Those who were attracted to Jesus. Let me read verses 7 to 10 again. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. We see this crowd and we see the disciples and we see that this crowd demonstrates their interest, demonstrates their attraction to Jesus in at least three ways. First of all, it's described as a great crowd or a great multitude, which tells you something about the size, right? It's huge. It's not the type of crowd that has been following Jesus around so far in his ministry, though those crowds were big as well. You remember, they filled up completely what was likely Peter's house, so much so that when four friends brought their paralyzed friend, they couldn't get in the doorway, so they went up on the roof and they cut a hole in the thing and dropped their friend down. Jesus has been surrounded throughout his public ministry so far But Mark shows us what Bob read for us earlier, that Jesus' ministry now is beginning to be extended even farther 
than just the Jews. And even farther than just the Jews in the northern territory of Capernaum. So there's a great crowd. It's a, it's a big number that's gathered around. And the second point of interest, the, the second thing that teaches us about the attraction of this crowd to Jesus is where they came from. If you look in the map in the back of your Bible, assuming you have one there, then you'll very easily be able to recognize all of these names that are listed here. Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, beyond the Jordan, Tyre and Sidon. They're all areas that make up the nation of Israel in the time of Jesus. He's been conducting his ministry in Galilee already. And to the south of Galilee is Judea, where Jerusalem is. And to the south of Judea is Idumea. It's at the very bottom of the nation of Israel in those days. To give you some context, it was about 120 miles south of Jesus' location. From here, it's 123 miles to Redding, California. That's how far people have come to see Jesus. And they didn't have cars back then. And the five wasn't around. They couldn't just hop on it and come up. In addition to Idumea, they came from beyond the Jordan. And, and by the way, Idumea and the area of uh, beyond the Jordan, those were areas that were mixed with both Jew and Gentile. And then you get to Tyre and Sidon, which was 50 miles north of the location. So Mark is telling us, they came from north, south, east, and west. The area of Tyre and Sidon was almost entirely Gentile. The word about Jesus is getting out. People are hearing all that he's doing, and they're so interested in him that they're coming from as far as 120 miles away. That's attraction, isn't it? That's serious interest. I wouldn't drive to Reading for just any old thing. But if someone whom I loved or someone whom I was seriously interested in seeing was there, I'd go. The crowd's interest is signaled by how many people there were, where they came from, and then also it's signaled by what they did. Notice their actions. What is the crowd doing? Well, first of all, they hear the news about Jesus, what he can do, and so they go to him. Word is spreading, and they're coming. But then also there are two verbs which Mark uses to explain the, really the desperation of the crowd. The ESV translates them really well with crush and press. Others say crowd, but that's a little too soft there. They're crushing in on him so much so that Jesus tells his disciples, get a boat ready because they're mobbing me. Jesus was genuinely concerned that he was going to be trampled by this crowd. And it makes sense, right? If you came from 120 miles away and you had a disease of some kind, you would do anything you could to get close to Jesus. You would push, you would shove, you would crowd surf. Whatever you had to do, you would get to Jesus. And so they crushed him 
or, or they were attempting to crush him. And then also verse 10 tells us, because Jesus had healed so many, all those who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. To press means just that. It means to apply pressure or to push in on something. And so we sometimes think of Jesus in the goofy pictures that are painted, you know, where there's total calm and order. Jesus is just sitting and everybody else is at a respectful distance and they're nice and quiet. That was not what was happening here. Think more of Beatlemania. They're mobbing him. They're probably screaming, they're yelling. There's a great multitude from literally everywhere in Israel. So I don't know, there were hundreds, if not thousands, all focused their attention on one man. It was an intense scene. They were deeply attracted to Jesus. They were profoundly interested in Jesus. But a good question to ask and a good observation to make is why they were interested in Jesus. Was it because he was, as we saw back in chapter one, he was the most authoritative teacher that Israel had ever seen? Was it because of that? They could care less about his teaching. It was because of his ability to heal. It was because of his actions that they were attracted to Jesus. Now, let's not make a mistake here in thinking that that is completely and entirely wrong. It is right to be attracted to Jesus by what he can do. After all, if what he can do was not meant to attract, then there would be no point of his miracles. But if that's where interest stops in what Jesus can give me, what Jesus can do for me, then the reality is that that attraction to him, no matter what it might look like, or no matter how strong it is, was deeply and inherently self-centered. Give me, Jesus. It's treating Jesus like a genie. Jesus, it's your job to heal me. So heal me. This is what the crowd wanted from him. They had heard what he could do. He had healed so many. And verse 10 gives us the purpose clause of why they came so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They knew what Jesus' touch could do. They knew what Jesus' word could do. And later on in the ministry, we'll see what even just touching Jesus can do. And so they say, we just got to get close to him just to touch him. And if we just touch him, then we will be healed. Now there's something commendable there, right? There's an aspect of faith that's happening there. We've seen this faith in those who have been healed so far. Last week, the man with the withered hand, Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And what did he do? He stretched it out. The man knew that Jesus could heal him. Even the Pharisees knew that Jesus could heal him. And so the man demonstrated an act of faith. These folks demonstrate an aspect of faith knowing that Jesus is capable. And perhaps if they just touch him, then they might very well be healed But Jesus did not come primarily to heal the afflictions of his people, though he did. Jesus came primarily to be the substitute for the sins of his people. 
And that's what the disciples increasingly will come to understand, most especially after the resurrection when Jesus teaches them. And so we see then that simple attraction to Jesus is not enough to make one a Christian. It's not enough to make one a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this very same thing today, don't we? Attraction to Jesus? You talk to most any people that call themselves spiritual, and they'll say, I like Jesus. He was a great guy. They'll tell you some goofy story about how he actually came to, went to India a while to teach, and then he came to America to teach before he went back to heaven. They'll tell you all kinds of goofy stories about that because that's what the spiritualists in our area teach, not just our area, but they'll tell you all kinds of crazy things that just simply aren't true about Jesus, but they will tell you, I like Jesus. He's great. But the real question is, do they respond to the authority of Jesus? Well, that's a whole different animal, isn't it? We have to be sure that in our discipleship, in our effort to make disciples, in our our parenting, in our one-on-one discipleship, in our children's ministry, even in our nursery, in our Sunday schools, in every Bible study, we have to be sure that we remember that it's not just interest that makes a person a Christian. We're glad when anybody shows up to hear about Jesus, aren't we? But it doesn't stop there. We have to be concerned not just for their interest, but concerned for their souls. And a person who is concerned for the souls of the people around them is not going to settle for, I like Jesus. Well, tell me more about that. What is it that you like about him? What do you think about him saying he is the only way to the Father? Do you like that? You might want to say that a little differently if you're having a a nice conversation with someone. Of course, you want to use wisdom and tact. But we make a mistake if we simply stop at the surface level, don't we? We're not doing someone good for their soul if we only keep it at the reality that they're interested in Jesus. How many people are interested in Jesus and yet entirely hellbound? because they've never repented of their sins and they've never believed that they are a sinner for whom Jesus died, rose from the grave, and now gives life to them if they would just believe his gospel. It's not simple attraction that makes one a Christian. And then secondly, the second response that we see is from the unclean spirits or the demons. And it is those who rightly confessed Jesus in verses 11 to 12. There were some even within the crowd who were possessed by demons or as Mark likes to call them unclean spirits. And you'll notice that Mark doesn't say it was the people who themselves who were possessed that made this profession, but it was the demons, the unclean spirits inside of them that made this profession. Verses 11 and 12, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. 
So within this massive crowd, we have highlighted for us yet again what Mark likes to call the unclean spirits. You remember back to the leprous man, the man who asked Jesus to make him clean. And we talked about the difference between being clean and unclean in the mind of the Jews. And it applies here to the unclean spirits. They were spirits just like God is spirit. But the difference between God and these spirits is that God is clean and these spirits are the opposite of God. They are unclean unfit to be in the presence of God. And we know who these spirits belong to, don't we? The evil one, Satan himself. They were amongst the fallen angels that he took with him from heaven. And so Mark highlights for us their confession, the reality that whenever they saw Jesus, and that Greek word is a, is a deeper word than just seeing visibly. It's a word that means more like when they carefully examined him, when they investigated him, when they looked at him and they realized who he was, what was their response? They fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. Now, is that normal practice for Satan to worship God? Not typically, But the reality is that even Satan and every one of his demons know who Jesus is. And even Satan and every one of his demons stand underneath the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They bow before him because they can do nothing else. Even Satan knows the truth about Jesus' identity. And even the unclean spirits are forced, against their will, I'm sure, to bow before the presence of the Son of God. And not only do they bow before him, but they say from their mouth, the very thing that Mark has told us is true about Jesus, Mark chapter 1 verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then the father at Jesus' baptism confirms, you are my son. And now before any human being recognizes it, the unclean spirits recognize Jesus is the son of God. They rightly confessed Jesus' identity. But did they follow him in faithful obedience? Did they worship him from changed hearts that had been purified by the touch of God? No, of course not. But I have to wonder, if you were in that crowd that day, would you have known who had an unclean spirit and who did not? I would say most likely not. The devil likes to disguise himself as an angel of light. And so we certainly have demon-possessed people like the the crazy man who was chained up outside of the city. We certainly have those type of people. But we also have the type of people that can sit in a synagogue service and under the pressure of Jesus' preaching, like we saw in Mark chapter 1, simply just cry out the very same thing about Jesus. If he could sit in a synagogue service, I'm sure that nobody in the crowd, no human being in the crowd realized that guy is possessed by a demon. 
And so within this crowd, I highly doubt that anyone other than Jesus knew they are possessed by demons. So then picture yourself as an onlooker in this crowd and you see someone falling down before this man and someone crying out, you are the son of God. What would you think? I venture to say you would think, wow, they are really godly. You know what? Maybe I should do that too. Maybe I should fall down on my knees before Jesus and cry out the very same thing. But Jesus sees the truth of what's inside. He looks past the flesh of the human being who has been taken captive by the unclean spirit and he sees that dark and ugly being sent from Satan himself, the unclean spirit. And what does he say to the unclean spirits? He strictly ordered them not to make him known. He charged them, he commanded them, he ordered them, shut up. Why? Because the evangelism of demons is not acceptable to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we have this same issue today? Perhaps from demons, but even from lost souls who can rightly confess Jesus is the Son of God who might even fall down on their knees at times at the existence and the reality of who Jesus is. And yet, they are just as doomed as the unclean spirits. You see why we have to be careful in our assessment of one another? You see how we can't settle for the surface level, even just a profession of faith? Though you know that when we baptize someone, we say something like, based upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The reality is that as human beings, all we have to go on is a profession of faith and a matching life that coincides with that profession of faith. But how often, how often do we help someone on their way to hell by settling for, well, they know who Jesus is? This is the story of my life. For 23 years, I could tell you Jesus is the Son of God, but I was dead in my sin. Convinced I wasn't, but totally dead in my sin. And I know a number of you have that very same testimony as well. I thought I was a Christian. And then it was as if I heard the gospel for the very first time. And I realized to the core of my being, I was a sinner condemned by God. And Jesus was a savior sent by God, who is greater than any one of my sins, who paid for every single one of them. We do not want to wrongly be the salvation police where we sit in judgment over everyone's testimony and we think to to ourselves, "Ah, that's not good enough. But we need to rightly discern the body, do we not? I want you to do something right now. Look around. 
Seriously, look around. Turn around, stretch out a little bit. Look around at all the faces around you. Now look to me. It's disappointing, I know. Here's my question for you. Do you know what those faces you just looked like looked at believe about Jesus? Or do you come on Sunday morning, do your own thing, get your own stuff, be fed by yourself, and then just leave? Satisfied with mere cordial conversation because you don't want to rock the boat. I think we do a pretty good job at this. But we can always do better, right? May God forbid that anyone who ever is in one of two positions like this, attracted to Jesus and rightly confesses Jesus, but both don't know Jesus, may God forbid that they would ever be here without at least hearing the truth about what a right response to Jesus is. And so we see that there were those who were attracted to Jesus, there were those who confessed Jesus, And then finally, the third response we see in the 12 apostles, those who were called and commissioned by Jesus, verses 13 to 19. Those who were called and commissioned by Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something. The first two responses, the crowd and the unclean spirits, those were initiated by the people, right? The crowd heard, and so they came. The demons saw, and so they bowed and confessed, But notice what happens here in verse 13 as Mark focuses in now on the disciples. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came. What's different here about this situation than the last situations? Jesus calls these people to himself, but he did not call those others to himself. They came because they heard about him. Mark, uh, or, uh, uh, Matthew tells us that, uh, and Luke tells us that this event happened after a night of prayer up on the mountain. Luke, Mark, in his usual hurried style, is not so concerned with all of those details, but is more concerned to show us Jesus' rejection of the, the established structure of Israel And his establishment of 12 apostles that will sit, as he will later tell them in his ministry, sit as judges over the nation of Israel in his future kingdom. How many tribes of Israel were there? Are there? 12. How many apostles does Jesus point out? 12. What do you think a Jew would hear when they hear the number 12? Wait a minute, 12? I know that number. There are echoes of Moses' activity in the Exodus right here as Jesus establishes the church based upon him. A church that would be for Jew and Gentile and a church that would be founded on the, the, the teaching and the foundation of the apostles themselves who later would sit in judgment over the 12 tribes of Israel when Jesus comes and establish his kingdom on earth. This is a symbolic of Jesus' rejection of the leadership of Israel. 
in the reality that he had come to establish what God had already always intended to establish. Israel had come so far away from the scriptures, though they never realized it, Jesus comes to set it right. So he goes up on the mountain. And then he calls to himself those whom he desired, and they came. Notice it's the call of Jesus that goes out. But notice why Jesus called these particular people. Because he desired or another way to translate, translate that is he willed it. These were the ones whom Jesus had foreordained to be his apostles. These are the ones whom Jesus wanted to be his apostles. Why these 12 men? We ask that question sometimes, right? Why Peter? I mean, the guy was always getting himself in trouble. Why Judas? The guy betrayed him. Why? Because he wanted to. That's why. It goes no deeper than that. You could ponder it all you want, but the Bible just says, he called those whom he desired. Why does Jesus call anyone to himself? Because he wants to. Because he desires it. Because it is his sovereign will to do that very thing. And what do the called do when the call of Jesus goes out? They come. They can do nothing else. See, this is descriptive of the effectual call of God unto salvation. There is the general call that goes out to all people. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But then within that general call, there is the effectual call. A call which cannot be resisted. A call which cannot be ignored, a call which cannot be denied. Jesus says, come to me. And what did you do when he said that to you? You came. Because just as the demons recognize this is the Son of God whose authority is unmatched by anyone else, even the will of man. So we see the sovereign power of Jesus to call those whom he desired. And verse 14 says, and he appointed 12, those whom he also named apostles. Now there's a little bit of a textual variance here. Some of your translations also say whom he also named apostles. Some of your translations have chosen to leave that out. Those few words are in some of the ancient manuscripts and they're not in other parts of the ancient manuscripts. So the I noticed that the New American Standard did not include that, but for instance, the Legacy Standard does include those words. So it's a translation decision to decide whether or not the manuscript evidence should say it's in there or it's not in there. But whether we have it in there or not, you know these are the 12 apostles, right? So it really doesn't make any difference for our interpretation of the text, other than the reality that it says whom he also named apostles, or or rather, and he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles. The word appointed, most of our, I think I checked it, most of our translations say appointed. The word appointed is actually made. He made them 
the 12. As if he created them. And then, after creation, what did the first Adam do? He named everything. Because he was the one that was over everything. So when the last Adam, according to Romans 5, creates these apostles for the foundation of the church, what does he do? He names them to be apostles. Those who are sent out to do his work. That's what it means to be an apostle, a sent one. It it doesn't so much matter on the sending, though that's important, but what matters more is who did the sending. The Son of God himself sent them out to do two things. So that they might be with him, number one, And number two, that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So there's a twofold reason that he called them and appointed them. Number one, that they would be with him. Jesus is truly God and truly man. Let me ask you do you enjoy having friends? It depends on the day, maybe, right? But generally, you would say, yes, I enjoy having friends. So did the God-man. What did God say at the beginning of all creation? It is not good that man should be alone. It was not good that Jesus would be alone. And so he appointed them, first of all, so that they would be with him. So that he would have company. So that he would have companionship. And so that he could teach them the necessary things in order to continue the mission that he had come to establish. This is why these 12, Judas would disappear after betraying Jesus and then killing himself. And Matthias would then replace him. But that's why these 12 were the basis of the foundation of the church. Because they were with Jesus, and it's why when they when it became time to replace Judas and appoint Matthias, it was why one of the necessary characteristics of the one who would take Judas's place was that they walked with Jesus, because they needed to hear Jesus's voice and see Jesus's face as he taught them about who he was and about the very kingdom of God. So they needed to be with him. And then secondly, he would send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons, which is a small little description of Jesus's ministry, right? What what was it that they would preach? What was it that Jesus preached? The gospel of the kingdom of God. They would preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Not, not anything they wanted to preach, But based upon the authority that Jesus has and instills in them, they would preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and they would demonstrate the power of that gospel and the authority of the one who sent them by their ability to cast out demons. This was to authenticate the preaching of the gospel. And so we see that their function was to be with Jesus, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And then we see their identity given the list of names that we have. Verse 16 says, he appointed the 12, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is sons of thunder, 
Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. And and Judas's name, Judas Iscariot, is drugged throughout the New Testament with that ball and chain indicator, the one who betrayed him. Mark was written after all of these events, right? The readers of Mark, who were Christians at least, would have known, oh yeah, that's the one who betrayed Jesus. He lays out the identity for each one of these men. And you can certainly read some great books. You think of the book 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur, or uh, there's other books that have been written specifically on a number of the apostles. But what I want us to focus a little bit more on is something that I think is deeply encouraging for us. We know a number, uh, we know a few things about a number of these apostles, and we don't know very much about else, uh, other ones. You can read church history, and if those historical claims are accurate, and we don't have a reason to believe they're not, but we don't have it on the authority of Scripture to say that they are, but we can learn, <clears throat> excuse me, we can learn more about them, certainly. But what Mark is doing here and what Jesus did was highlight for us the ordinary nature of the followers of Jesus Christ, these disciples. What does it mean, first of all, to be a disciple? The word means to be a learner, an apprentice of sorts. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a disciple. A disciple of whom? Not your favorite teacher, though there's nothing wrong with that, but fundamentally, a disciple of Jesus. A daily learner of Jesus. You know, preachers never get tired of saying, this is why we read our Bibles. Because without the truth of God's word, you cannot, you cannot, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. You can be one of the crowd that's interested in him. I like him and I hope he gets me into heaven, but you can't be a disciple. My entire life is devoted to him. I would give up anything for him. And so we see the the ragtag nature of these disciples. And, And amongst this group, there are at least three categories of people. Number one, there were those with character concerns. You think of Peter, for instance, who heads up the apostles. Always in every list, Peter is the the chief among them. You think about Peter's life. Always saying the wrong thing. Even later on, as an apostle, Paul had to come and correct him because of his hypocrisy of not eating with the Gentiles and only eating with the Jews. I mean, an apostle, for crying out loud, had to be church-disciplined. It only went to the first step, praise the Lord, but even an apostle is subject to church discipline. And then you think about Peter's denial of Jesus. And yet, Jesus knew every one of those things was going to happen, didn't he? And he still desired to call Simon, whom he named Peter, which means rock. There were James and John, the sons of thunder, which sounds kind of cool, but was actually not a compliment. 
They got their name Sons of Thunder because they were hot-headed, because they had a temper problem. Luke 9, 51 to 56 says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Sons of thunder. Lord, we'll do it right here, right now. Give us the word. Come on, fire. In addition to the character problems of Peter and James and John, there was Judas. Who, of course, was sovereignly foreordained to be one of the disciples of Jesus Christ so that he could betray Jesus. It was in fulfillment of scripture But we understand the guy had a serious character problem, didn't he? He stole from the money bag and he betrayed the Lord Jesus. And then you might even perhaps consider Thomas as having a bit of a character flaw in the fact that he just didn't believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead unless he could see him, which in part is commendable. But Jesus says, blessed are all those who do not see and yet believe. There were character problems. There were shady backgrounds. You had Matthew or Levi who was a tax collector, an enemy of Israel. And then you had Simon the Zealot. Zealots were ultra-nationalists who were committed to holy war against Rome. That's who the Zealots were. And they were often responsible for political assassinations because they wanted to remove the Roman Empire. They were committed first and foremost to their own freedom from tyranny than they were to the truth of God's word. And yet, here's one of them. Jesus said, you're mine. Shady backgrounds, and then also we have others that we just simply don't know much about. The Bible doesn't give us a whole lot more about many of these guys. But my friends, I think all of those categories are an encouragement to us because first of all, any of us have character concerns? Hot tempers, cowardice, saying the wrong thing at the wrong time? Sign me up, right? Any of us have shady backgrounds? And we don't need to hear about it. There's children. In addition to character concerns and shady backgrounds, are any books going to be written about any of us? Probably not. But my friends, this shows us that the disciples of Jesus do the work of Jesus regardless of whether they're recognized for it or not. You see, it's not so much about what the disciples of Jesus bring to the table. It is far more significant about what Jesus does with the disciples. Not what they do for Jesus, but what Jesus does with them. 
One commentator says discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but in what Christ can make of disciples. Isn't that encouraging? As you think about the sins that you still battle, maybe the sin that you don't really want to battle, so you just keep shoving it into a corner. And yet we see the reality that the Lord doesn't call perfect people because there are none. The Lord calls sinners, repentant sinners, to walk with him and to be his disciples. But he does expect that they be his disciples. He does expect that they be daily walking with him in discipleship, learning more and more what it is to be a Christian, what it is to know and love Jesus Christ. So we see then that in the life of Jesus, there were those who were attracted to him. There were those who, were rightly, confessed, who rightly confessed him. And then there were those whom he called to himself. And he commissioned with a responsibility to continue the work that he had given. And I say to you once again, those are the very same things that are true today. So I urge you then, my friend... Consider which category you fall into. Are you attracted to Jesus? That's good. But does it stop there? Do you rightly confess Jesus? That's good. But does it stop there? Or have you been called by Jesus and commissioned by Jesus to do the work of Jesus? by making disciples. Only the Lord knows the reality of the answer to that. But every one of us has an obligation to answer it. May God give us the grace that we need to be the called and the commissioned to join Jesus in building his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, your grace and your mercy. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his love for those whom he has died for. We, lay, we praise you, Lord, that while you have elected us and predestined us, Jesus has sanctified us by his sacrifice. The Spirit has sealed us for the day of redemption. We praise you that we are yours. And so we pray, O oh God, that as those who belong to you, you would keep our minds fixed on what we are re- rightly required to do as disciples and We pray that you would remember and remind us that we came to you because you desired to call us to yourself. That though we were sinners, you called us to yourself. When we were your enemies, you said, come and be my friends. We pray, Lord, that your grace would always be our motivator as we seek to be faithful disciples who follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.